Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. We're calling 2019 the year of the Bible, and all year long we're reading through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and our Sunday sermons are coming from the weekly readings. If you'd like to join in, go to cornerstonetulsa.org, click on Year of the Bible. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text for today comes from Genesis 50, 15 through 20, um, page 76 of your pew Bible. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I am in a place, or am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Um, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the message uh, that John has prepared for us today. Uh, I ask that you would uh, just prepare our hearts and our minds for your word. Uh, Lord, let it inspire us and move us towards obedience and positive action. In your name, amen. Man, thanks, Jake. You can be seated. All right, well, this is uh, week three in Year of the Bible. We're uh, in week three of the story. Uh, you know, lots of you are, are there a lot of readers in the room? Do people enjoy reading? Is, is that a thing people do anymore? Okay, I like reading books. Um, what do you need for a good story? What are the basic elements that you need to tell any story? You need a plot, helpful. What else? Suspense, characters, what else? Pictures, <laughs> if it's a picture book, very helpful. I like books with pictures. What else? A problem, yeah, a challenge, conflict of some kind. Yeah, all of these things are helpful, uh, especially the picture books comment. Mike, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, at the most basic level, if you're going to tell a good story, you need characters and you need conflict. A conflict, a challenge, an obstacle of some kind. If you don't have characters and you don't have conflict, you're just like staring at a blank wall. It's a really boring story. I've never heard of a story with no characters, and it's a lame story that has no conflict. Uh, so a couple examples. Uh, the boys were having a great summer until their baseball went into the backyard of the guy with the big dog, which is the story of? Okay. Um, Woody was Andy's favorite toy until the birthday when he got Buzz Lightyear, which of course is... And Wayne really wanted to put on a concert, but he couldn't book any bands. Anybody? Almost. Wayne's World 2, that's correct. <laughs> got one fan in the room, another one in the room, thank you. Um, if you don't have conflict in a story, I mean, you got no story. Conflict is what moves the story forward. Conflict is what provides the, the grounds for transformation, for growth. And we love to see a person in progress. Even in real life, you love to see someone who you know is just giving it their all. They're really trying. They're being transformed. Kyle, at the last service, his story, it was a story of a guy in progress. He's overcoming and battling conflict of a certain variety in his life. Conflict is what moves the story forward. 
Um, now, you may say, like, look at the story of your own life and identify the chapter you're in and the variety of conflict that you're facing. Uh, I love the Lord of the Rings books, and in the, the Two Towers, there's this really cool meta scene where Sam and Frodo are on their way to destroy the ring, and uh, they say, what kind of story have we found ourselves in? And uh, Frodo's got this great line. He says, you and I, Sam, are still stuck in the worst part of this story. And it's all too likely that some will say at this point, shut the book now, Dad. We don't want to read anymore. And maybe in the story of your life, you feel like you're in that kind of chapter, where if you were reading the story on the outside, you'd think, I really want this chapter to end soon. Uh, maybe you're experiencing grief from losing someone that you love or, or the pain of transition of moving to a new city or a new job or, or, or welcoming or losing a family member. There are all kinds of challenges that we find ourselves in. Uh, there's a character and there's conflict. Now, there's this songwriter named Damien Gerardo who's got a great song called Life Away from the Garden. And he summarizes in this poetic form the story that we've been reading so far in the year of the Bible, in the, covering the book of Genesis. This is how Damien Gerardo summarizes our story, the character and the conflict. There was a time when we were golden. Like the sun, we were lights in the world. But then we strayed away from the garden. Mm, mm, mm. And you can just hear the, the ache in the song. There was a time when things were perfect, and then. And you could probably look back on your own life. Things were going great until mom and dad got a divorce, or until you lost that family member, or you moved to a new town, or you started making this habitual choice that was destructive for you. There was a time when we were golden, but then. Today, uh, as we're wrapping up, we've wrapped up the book of Genesis. If you're keeping up with your reading, which I hope you're doing great, uh, we've started the book of Exodus. Before we get too far into the next book of the Bible, I want to offer a little bit of a summary of what we've read so far in the first 50 chapters of the Bible, the book of Genesis, provide a little bit of context for it, and hopefully help us all look back on what we've just read or what you may cram reading this afternoon uh, with a little bit more context to be able to see like some of the highlights and the milestones along the way. We're going to look at seven pictures of good news in the, in the book of Genesis. So before we get there, let me, let's, let's catch everybody up on the story. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First verse in the Bible, we get our, our main character who is God. And we get, we get some kind of the beginning of the plot, the setting. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the, the context in which the rest of the story can unfold. God's the principal character. And the principal character, who the, uh, the author of Hebrews called the author of this story, the author and perfecter of our faith, decides to create some supporting characters, a supporting cast uh, to join God. So uh, in verse uh, 26 and 27, we meet the supporting cast. God said, let's make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created him. So God, the principal character of this whole story, creates his supporting characters, which is male and female humans made in his image, created to rule over all of the stuff that he created. And everything was going great. But there was a tree, 
and there was a serpent. This comes from chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And after this begins this dizzying, disorienting, like dismantling, see the three Ds there? I wrote that. Uh, Of God's good world. Things were going great until. And we see how things just begin to spiral out of control. Cain kills Abel, the the son of Adam, kills another son of Adam. We meet this character, Lamech, who's who's so proud of his violence and has multiple wives, who's, who's just making a mess of the world. We meet, before too long, the generation of Noah. And uh, Noah and his family go up in the ark, and we think, okay, we're going to get humanity 2.0. This time it's going to go better. And God blesses them, gives them the same blessing that he gives to Adam and Eve. But again, within heartbeats, Noah's drunk, and his son Ham does something shameful to him. We get to uh, the Tower of Babel, where evil is multiplying on the earth, and God scatters uh, the people. We go to uh, all of these stories that begin to snowball. We see rape, we see destruction, we see murder, we see greed, we see evil institutionalized in nations and warring tribes, and things go very, very poorly, even drought and famine in the land. Michael Gunger, a songwriter, wrote a song called The Fall. He said, the fall, the fall, oh God, the fall of man. The fruit is found in every eye and every hand. Nothing, there is nothing left in truest form. We walk like ghosts upon the earth. The ground, it groans. And you sense the groaning as you turn page after page of the story of the beginning of things in the book of Genesis. In a world that was once good, 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 very good, we see evil multiplying and institutionalizing, and it's, and it's embedding its way into every human heart. This is Genesis chapter 6. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 says, the inclination of every heart was evil all the time. I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and I heard uh, a speaker talk about poverty in an interesting way. He said, poverty is all about broken relationships, a broken relationship with our creator, a broken relationships with, with our fellow human beings, a broken relationship within ourself, that we're disjointed on the inside, and also a broken relationship with the earth. And we see this brokenness, this poverty in all parts of God's creation, even in the human heart. A world that was inundated and teeming with the life and the beauty and the glory of God was now compromised and perverted. And the unraveling of God's good world that was promulgated by the rebellion of human beings and our choices leads the reader to ask the question, what's the main character, who is God, going to do to overcome the conflict in God's story? You have character and you have conflict. What's the main character going to do to overcome the conflict? And what we see and what we're going to explore in the next couple of minutes is that God had a plan from the very beginning to respond to human rebellion. That God had a plan that was whispered versions of it in the very beginning that over the course of time God revealed ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ. This is what we call progressive revelation. We get whispers of it. We get seeds of it. We get prototypes of it. And eventually it comes in its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul said that Jesus was the mystery kept hidden for ages and generations. It's just a whisper, just an idea, 
just a form, but the fullness would, would one day come. So we're going to give uh, seven answers this morning to the question, what was God going to do in response to human rebellion? And it's going to come from the book of Genesis. Seven answers to the question, what was God planning to do in response to human rebellion? Okay, here's number one. God was planning to get us back to the garden, to get us back to the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, when, when God uh, uh, lays out the consequences for humanity, for the serpent, for creation, for their rebellion, God in his mercy distances the people from the tree of life. It's God's mercy that we who had every inclination of our hearts being evil all the time would one day die so that our evil would not be eternal. Uh, this comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. After he, God, drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, which are angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God, in his mercy, limited our lifespan so that our evil would not multiply forever. We'd been in a world where there were rightly ordered relationships in all directions, but there was a splinter in it, there was a crack in the windshield, and the crack began to spread. We experienced vocation, but it was, was with deep frustration in the human identity. There's, there's a sense of brokenness, and now we're kept from the garden where we could walk with God and experience unadulterated joy in his presence. And so the reader asks the question, how can we get back to the garden? And the answer to that question covers the course of, of the whole story, a story that we're all a part of right now, a story that's continuing to be written through salvation history in real time. But we know what the end of the story looks like. This is the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, which we're going to read on Christmas Eve of this year. This is Revelation 22, 1 through 5. John, the apostle, has this vision, and he's describing his vision. He said, The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. It's accessible. It's central bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What had God planned to do in response to human rebellion from the very beginning? He was promising and willing to bring us back to the garden, the place where we could experience uh, restored relationships with our creator, with each other, with ourselves, and with creation itself. The answer of how he's going to do it is not immediately clear. The, the, the plot has lots of twists and turns, but God was seeding the idea from the very beginning that the garden would one day be our home in a renewed creation, Revelation 22. The second thing that God planned to do in response to human rebellion was to cover our shame. Cover our shame. This is Genesis 3-7. The eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Uh, now, you've looked at the Jesus, you've look, looked at like the kid Bibles in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall, and Adam and Eve are always carefully behind that tree or that bush. But the reality is they're walking around nudie all the time. And there's, a spirit, there's an experience of comfort with themselves, completely vulnerable, 
with their creator, with creation, and with themselves, with, with each other. There's a sense of, of comfort. And when they rebel against their creator, instantly there's this sense of needing to hide. We spend a lot of time and money and energy covering our vulnerabilities, our physical vulnerabilities. The clothes that we put on, and it's all of us, are trying to project an image that we want, how we want other people to perceive us. If they really knew just how insecure I am, if you really knew how much I hid, the secrets I hid, the doubts that I hid, you couldn't bear my presence. We spend unending time and energy covering our emotional vulnerabilities, our physical vulnerabilities, our relational vulnerabilities, and we hope to God that nobody finds out what we're really thinking about. And, God, and Adam and Eve immediately find something to hide behind. And we hide behind all kinds of things. You hide behind your career, behind your children, behind your accomplishments. Or maybe you just try to withdraw altogether so that no one will notice you and you won't need to, to hide to, to find a covering. There's something so beautiful that happens in this chapter not long after Adam and Eve make a covering for themselves, which is going to deteriorate, which is going to blow away. This is Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Was God the reason they felt exposed? Did, did God cause them harm, or did they do it to themselves? They did it to themselves. And God was not obliged or obligated to provide something for him, but God in his mercy provided something in particular, skins, to cover them. Now, the thing about mammals, mammals are not like snakes where like a deer could just like take off its skins and provide it. Hey, you can use it for a while. I'll grow another one. That's not how it works. There's no provision of skins without the shedding of blood, without an animal dying. Now, this seeds something, a theological concept that we're going to meet in the book of Leviticus that is really, really important in the Bible, and it ultimately points us to Jesus. And it's the idea of atonement. An animal shed its blood to yield its skins to cover the vulnerabilities of Adam and Eve. This is called atonement, the covering of sin. We're going to see this a ton in the book of, of Leviticus as we talk about the atonement cover within uh, the tabernacle, the atonement for sins. This is how it pops up in the New Testament in 1 John 2.2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He's the skin. His blood was shed to provide skins to cover our shame. For not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. What was God planning to do in response to human rebellion? He was planning to get us back to the garden. He was planning to cover our shame through the shedding of blood. This sets up Jesus beautifully. The third thing we see in Genesis that God was planning to do in response to our rebellion was to defeat the serpent who first deceived. This is God's word to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity or rivalry between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And if you've been tracking with the Bible Project stuff, I thought this was one of the coolest ways they put this. They gave the image of a wounded victor. Do you remember this in the videos? A victor who would stomp on the head of the serpent, but in the process would be wounded, foreshadowing the one who was to come, who would die on our behalf and yet prove victorious. He would defeat the enemy. Now, the, the scripture is very vague in this case. Why and how the serpent is introduced into the story is a mystery that we'll not know until the age to come, until God gives us that answer 
himself. But what the Old Testament and the New Testament make abundantly clear is that we do have an enemy. This is 1 Peter. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. How many of you would like to be in a room like with a, like a dangerous snake or a dangerous lion? Not a good place to be. Think of the, the images that the Bible's providing. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. So we've got an enemy. This is how 1 John deals with it, which I think is awesome. 1 John explains simply why Jesus came. It says, the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. His plan from the very beginning in response to human rebellion was to defeat the serpent who first deceived. That's number three. Number four, his plan was to bless the world through a family. Now think about the definition of poverty that we discussed. Broken relationship with our creator, broken relationship with each other, broken relationship within ourselves, and a broken relationship with creation. God was going to mend those broken relationships through a mended and a mending family by restoring a relationship. This is the call of Abram in uh, Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And through you, the text says, I will bless all of the families of the earth, all of the ethnos, all the ethnicities, the ethnic families of the earth. Through this broken but mended and mending family, God would heal and renew the whole world. And the New Testament authors have to make it abundantly clear that when Jesus came, he was coming as the heir of this promise. He was the offspring, the seed of Abraham. And so when Matthew begins his gospel, he makes it abundantly clear who this Jesus is. Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David and the son of Abraham. Through, in response to broken relationships, God was mending a relationship offering a mending, healing force through this family. What was God going to do in response to human rebellion? He was going to get us back to the garden to cover our shame, to defeat the serpent, to bless the world through a family. And number five, this is probably my favorite, to show favor to the undeserving. To show favor to the undeserving. Now, uh, if, you, if you read through Genesis, or maybe you're going to cram this afternoon, no shame, go for it. Uh, if you read through Genesis, there was, there was some really weird repetition. Did you notice this? So Jacob, Jacob whose name means deceiver. Who's the only other deceiver that we know of in the book of Genesis? The devil. So when Jacob is introduced as the deceiver, he's like, he's the devil-like one. And he acts like it. He's always, pull, he's always messing with his brother. Uh, Jacob, the deceiver, gets blessed and not Esau. Why is that? Why does, why does Isaac get blessed even though Ishmael was technically the first son of Abraham. Why does that happen? At the very end, when, uh, when Jacob is blessing the sons of Joseph and he calls Joseph's sons together, he lays his hand on Ephraim, even though he's the younger, and gives him the first blessing and not Manasseh, even though he's the older one. And it happens so many times you think God must be trying to say something to us. He keeps blessing the person he shouldn't bless. He keeps showing mercy to those who don't deserve it because somebody else was in line ahead of them. Does that sound like anybody else that you know? 
Does it sound like anybody else in the Bible? What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Look, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are marching ahead of you into the kingdom of God. The people who on the outside don't look like they have it perfectly together are receiving mercy while you guys are being punks, and I'm going to talk to you about it. That's the ministry of Jesus. He's showing mercy to those who don't expect it. And this is the message of the New Testament. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. It's not so amazing if the person is like awesome. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch. This is Paul in Romans uh, chapter 5. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. From beginning to end, God keeps showing favor to those who don't deserve it. And Jesus invites us to do the same thing. But you, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Then you'll be like your Father in heaven who shows mercy to those who are righteous and unrighteous, who causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. We see in the book of Genesis that God keeps blessing the people who are least deserving. The sixth thing that, the sixth thing that God promised to do, planned to do in response to human rebellion was to anoint a king to rule over us in love, to anoint a king. Now, sociologists talk about when a family goes through tremendous trauma, I'm, I'm leaning on like Edwin Friedman here, uh, the family's likelihood of survival depends a ton on whether there's a well-differentiated leader in that messed up family system. Is there someone in that messed up family system who's willing to say, well, I'm going to be well. I'm going to be healthy. You want to come? Let's do it. If a family has someone who's willing to say, I'm going to be well, here's where I'm going, that family has a much higher degree of likelihood of survival. When things are in chaos, you need a ruler. You need someone to set the tone for how things are going to be. And God knew for not only the nation of Israel, which was in turmoil, but also for the human race who needed to forget one way of being human and learn a totally different one, they needed a king. What kind of king would he send? In Genesis chapter 49, you'll remember this when we studied Tamar last month in the genealogy of Jesus, that Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, was giving a prophetic blessing over one of his sons named Judah. And this is what he said prophetically over Judah. He said, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is the awesome verse. Until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. We turn to the New Testament, and again, the, the scriptures are making pains to associate with Jesus these claims of this prophetic utterance by Jacob. When the wise men come looking for Jesus and they go to Herod, who do they say they're looking for? We're looking for him who has been born king of the Jews. When Jesus stands before Pilate, before his crucifixion, Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, if you say so. And above him on the cross... 
was, was inscribed the words, the king of the Jews in multiple languages so that everyone would know in their own language, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. It was intended to be a sign of shame. It was intended to be a sign of defeat. But Jesus upended that and showed, no, this is the kind of king that the world so deeply and desperately needs. A king who will lay down his life for his subjects, even for those who are crucifying him in the moment. That's the kind of king that God had planned to send all along. And he promised it to Judah, through your family line, I'm going to send this kind of king, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is Colossians 1.13. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, Jesus himself being the king. And the last thing, what does God plan to do in response to human rebellion? This is so cool. He's working to turn evil into good to turn evil into good. And this is what, where the, the text about Joseph that, that Jake read a minute ago illuminates this dynamic for us. So Jacob, uh, the father, is, has died, and Joseph's brothers, who were thinking about murdering him but decided to just sell him into slavery, are thinking about, you know what? He might not have forgotten that, and he might want to talk to us about it. And so they're feeling nervous. And so this is, this is uh, uh, Genesis 50, 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And this is a micro version of this Joseph narrative from 37 to 50, but it provides for us a kind of macro question that the readers of Genesis should ask. What is God going to do to all of us who screwed up his world? Is he going to pay us back as our sins deserve, as our rebellion deserves? And then Joseph gives this response that you can put in the voice of God and see something beautiful that he's doing. This is Joseph's response in verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended this for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And what we see seated in the book of Genesis not seat, seed, seated in the book of Genesis, is that God is endlessly resourceful. God is endlessly creative and laboring to turn evil into good, to turn evil into good. This, comes, this is affirmed in Romans chapter 8, great chapter. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. God is praying for you. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. You're worried about whether you're in God's will. God is praying for you to be in his will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. The Godhead is praying for you and laboring for your good. He can hit anything that you throw at him. God is endlessly creative and resourceful and twisting and turning to, to turn what people intend for evil into something good that accomplishes his glory in the world. I think the Jesus Storybook Bible illustrates this so beautifully in their summary of, of, of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. This is from the Jesus Storybook Bible, our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is not the Jesus Storybook Bible. What I'm about to share is our hope. 
One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be all the more wonderful for having once been so sad. All of this, God's plan to get us back to the garden, to cover our shame, to defeat the serpent, to bless the world through a family, to show favor to the undeserving, to anoint a king to rule over us, to turn evil into good. All of this is seeded in the book of Genesis. And it germinates, it sprouts, and it grows, puts down roots, it emerges from the soil. Over the ages and the generations, we learn a little bit more of what God was planning to do. And the stalk rises through the earth, and we see the first sign of blossom and budding at the coming of Jesus Christ. And the seed of Jesus that was sown in death and was raised imperishable in glory has caused other fruit to pop up in unexpected places. And so even in the crack of a sidewalk, we see beauty emerging. We see spring showing up in a world that feels like it's always winter and never Christmas. And that was like Kyle's story this morning and your story. That in a hopeless situation, when things were feeling very dark, where there was very little reason for hope, God was causing hope to emerge, for new life to bud where it feels like it's always winter and it's never Christmas. And to come to know and to love and to find our place in this story is the invitation of everybody who loves Jesus. Because for us, we're a peculiar people. We need to start getting accustomed to saying to other people or to our children, we're different because we follow Jesus. This story is no mere intellectual exercise. This is not just some big book club that we have really great attendance at every week. We believe that this is the story that is narrating and anchoring our lives in the midst of chaos the story of truth through which God is working to achieve spring and winter, harvest and famine. This is the story that's narrating our lives. And the reason we have to know is because we're so easily lost and discouraged without it. I was talking with a friend of mine in the church who, through her work, is exposed to tremendous suffering. And she was working with one person who's close to my age and would probably be in a vegetative state for the rest of their life and was just uh, blindsided by the suffering. Worked with someone else who's much older, who's, who's suffering in their old age, and she felt in a moment of honesty and desperation, like, what is the point of all of this? If there's suffering in the middle, and that we're all going to suffer and die in the end, then what on earth is the point? And she was making the case of the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Everything is meaningless under the sun. Well, it is. I think that's a reasonable case to be made if your understanding of the world begins in chaos and rebellion and it ends in judgment, Revelation chapter 20. If it's death in the beginning, middle, and the end, and that's all there is, then we should go find a better hobby and become total hedonists and just have like crazy fun because we're all going to die. The Bible basically makes that point. But that's not the Christian story. There are rival narratives in the ancient Near East of a world that began in chaos and ended in chaos, and if it's chaos on bookends, then we should despair. We should lose hope. But that is not the Christian story. Our story is one with a really, really good beginning, 
of a God who loved the world, a God who loved his creation. It was good, 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 very good. A world that God loved that was tarnished through our choices, through human rebellion. God respected our choices so much, he gave us enough dignity to make choices even to choose to reject him. And we face the repercussions of that in human history. Where there's murder, there's rape, there's violence, there's disappointment, there's infertility, there's famine in all aspects of creation. There's body image issues, there's brokenness in relationships, marriage fall apart, and ultimately there's death, which is our number one enemy. We face the consequences of this for our rebellion. But in the course of time, in the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus to, to, pres to prescribe a new kingdom, a new way to be human, a new project that God was unleashing in the earth that was initiated through his death and his resurrection and the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom. He said, it's going to come in its fullness. Join me now. And we find ourselves now in between these, this third and this fourth part of the story where we wait for the day when Christ returns in victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. The day when he wipes away every tear from every eye, when the dead are raised imperishable, when there's no more death or mourning or crying or shame. We wait for that day, but we look forward to it with hope. We grieve in the face of death because it still hurts and that enemy is still undefeated, but we grieve with hope knowing that its days are marked. Its days are numbered. The world is so discouraging. There is such an onslaught of reasons for pessimism and cynicism that if we're not anchored into a bigger story, we should just give up and despair or go into hedonism or take things to its logical conclusion. If Jesus is true, this narrates hope into our story even when things feel so uncertain and so broken. And this is what Paul said in response to like all of the truth of God's hope in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, so listen, brothers and sisters, let nothing move you. Stand firm. Always give yourself fully to the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. So maybe you find yourself in a chapter where it feels, it feels never-ending. You are overwhelmed by grief with the weariness of just continuing Maybe this morning there'd be a message of hope that would remind you this is not the end. And God is faithful. He's interceding for you and laboring for your good even now. Or maybe you say you're, you're in the middle of, of a story where you're like the prodigal who's run away or you're like Cain who's done the unthinkable. You think that God could never forgive you. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Maybe this would be a turning point in your story where you put your faith in Jesus to atone for your sins, to be the skins to cover over your vulnerability and your failure. And maybe you're a person who loves Jesus, and the, but just the Mondays keep coming, Tuesdays keep coming, and losing the big picture in the middle of the everydayness of life. Maybe today God would just give you the gift of encouragement and endurance to keep going the eyes to see, to discern the work of the kingdom, even in the normal, uh, the normalcy of everyday life for us. No matter where you are in your story, no matter the tone of your narrative to this point, God is the ultimate author of this story and can provide an amazing and a brilliant rewrite to the rest of this narrative that doesn't have to end in fatalism. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us. And we just confess that we're forgetful, we're fickle, we, we're, we're feeble at times. We, don't, we lose sight of like the big picture in the middle of the story. We're overwhelmed by the grief that we face, the frustration we face, the temptations we, we deal with on a daily basis. 
And so today, at this moment in 2019 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we just ask for the grace to recognize where we are in your story. Pray that you'd remind us of, of, your good, of the good beginning of your story, of a world that you love and continue to love. That love prompts you to intercede and to labor for our good. Anchor us in that reality of the Godhead working for our good. Give us the grace to confess our sins when we've, when we've rebelled against you. Thank you for the words of Scripture say, if we confess our sins, you're faithful, you're just, you'll forgive, and you will purify. So, Lord, in this moment, we just confess our sins to you and our deep need of you. For those of us who've never trusted in you, I've got to pray for the, tr- for the grace to just say, all right, I trust in you. What I'm doing on my own isn't working. Everything's leading to fatalism. And God, for those of us who are just, just you know, clocking in and out, who've walked with you for a long time, and maybe we've gotten weary in the journey, and we need the grace to endure, would you, by your Holy Spirit, give us that grace today? And even as we receive the bread and the juice in our body, make it be for us uh, the, the means through which we experience the assurance and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that even as it goes into our body, may the life and the breath of Jesus enter us and fill our lungs, cause our hearts to beat with hope, and may we live differently. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.